Hello, and welcome to Tech in Maine Presents. Thank you for joining another episode of Tech in Maine Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today, we will be speaking with Larry Whiteside. He is the founder of Whiteside Security, a boutique firm of current and former CISOs broadening and shaping the future leaders of tomorrow's cyber efforts. Larry, say hello to the Tech and May Presents audience. Hey, everyone. Hope everyone is well. Oh, Larry, it's a pleasure. I'm excited for what we're about to get into. And um, I think this is going to be an amazing episode for a number of reasons. But before we get too far into it, why don't you go ahead and share a little bit of your background with our audience? Sure. So um, I've been in this industry what seems like forever. So going on, I guess, 27 years or so when I feel I first broke into the industry in the early 90s as a coder. But I thought I wanted to be a developer. And then when I saw how dark the white coffee cups were that they were doing at Motorola as part of my internship, I realized I didn't like doing that. But then they asked me to break code. And once they asked me to break code, I fell in love with the, the mindset that comes with it. And that sort of was the beginning of a long career in this space. I joined the military. I'm very thankful for my military experience and my brothers and sisters in the military because the military gave me a whole lot of experience. And if you know the military and for those who, who've gone through it, A, I appreciate your service, but you also know the rigor that comes with being a member of the military and what you go through. And so I did eight and a half years there and uh, turned down major and resigned my commission to get out. And then I jumped into the private sector and was was CISO for a number of organizations in, in different parts of the country, healthcare, financial services, utility. It's been an amazing, amazing ride. Uh, you know, I've advised a number of different technology companies, a number of CEOs. I sit on as an advisor to a number of boards. I've been very blessed to have had the career I've had thus far. So it's an amazing journey, and I've still got a lot more to go. Well, that's great, Larry. So one thing I want to do is touch on your military background. First, thank you for your service, because you and your brothers and sisters in the military allow us the freedom to even do this podcast, among the many other things that we do in our day-to-day life. So thank you for that. But I also want to ask your opinion, because what I'm finding is the majority of the people that I speak with in the cybersecurity space, they have some sort of military experience. And I'm really interested to find out what your thought is between that tie-in of military background and working in cybersecurity. Yeah, so the reality is, is that being a member of the military, there's a level of discipline that gets built into you and becomes an ingrained part of who you are, right? And so with that, when you think about the aspect of integrity that's at the foundation of our principles in the space of cybersecurity, you don't really have to question the principles and the integrity of a former military member, right? Because there's a level of expectation that you have that what they went through, through basic training or through officer training school or through the academy or whatever their mechanism was in joining the military, and then through their career, whether it was a single enlistment, multiple enlistments, or being an officer, that they gained an aspect and perspective that you don't get in everyday civilian life. And so because of that, 
it just fits extremely well into who we are as cybersecurity professionals. Okay, great. Well, Larry, thank you for that explanation. And so with that, let's talk about the work that you're doing there at Whiteside Security. What has you most excited about your work there? You know, the thing that excites me most is just helping people, right? When So 10 years ago when I started uh, Whiteside Security, it was just something to do. It was something that I sort of did that I had on the side. It was a combination of a tax shelter for speaking and, and different side things that I would do. But it was it also was sort of when I was in between jobs, right? So so everybody's heard that the CISO gigs, you typically are anywhere between 18 to 24 months, and then you're moving from one gig to the other. And so when I would be in between and trying to figure out what my next step was going to be, it was sort of a mechanism that I can use to go out there and help people. And and I say help people because I didn't create it for any one purpose. It's really, if you go look at my LinkedIn profile for me, I love this industry. I think God purpose built me for this industry because I believe it's a, a way of thinking that you have to have to be successful in it. And so with that, my only goal is to help people be more successful in this industry. So whether that is a, a CISO who needs to better understand how to be a CISO, whether that's a board of directors who better want to better understand how to hold their CISO accountable and understand what they're doing, whether it's a uh, venture capital firm, right? So it's a VC firm or an angel investor who's looking to do some due diligence on a company that they're looking to invest in. My goal is to just be helpful and add value in any way I can. And and taking that sort of mantra out there and, and discussing it with friends and family and, and, and just colleagues in the industry, it's done pretty well thus far. And so for me, that's really my number one focus at Whiteside Security. Larry, I want to stay on that topic a little bit as far as what you mentioned about helping people and adding value. I note here that you are also one of the co-founders of the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals, or ICMCP. And so I want to have you touch on why you felt the need to found the organization and what are some of the things that you're seeing in cybersecurity that make this organization so important? Yeah, so it's interesting. So when we founded this organization, there were me and some friends of mine that all were recognizing that we were not seeing enough people that looked like ourselves as we traveled and went to both conferences or spoke in different places, right? So, and with that, we began reaching out to our uh, collective networks and, and really our own personal mentors to try and say, hey, we're seeing this problem. Do you agree that it's a problem? And it was interesting, really, because I was going down the path of, I see this problem. Is this something that's that you, and I was talking to, you know, senior, senior executives of big technology companies, something that you would support and donate towards trying to create an organization to help solve? And then my other co-founders were going down the path of, hey, do you see this as, with some of the same people, do you see this as the problem? And do you think it's worth creating an organization? And so we didn't, the, the, the three of us didn't even know that we were all having the same conversation with the same people about the same problem, just in a different way. 
And so our mentors basically pointed us to each other. But we sat down, drew this out over a napkin, and it was literally formed just like that. So, but we recognize that in order for things to change, right, it has to start somewhere, right? And and so I use the analogy of the California fires. And for some people who may be impacted by that fire, I'm sorry. This is not in any way to downplay the importance of the fires that are going on out there. But the reality is, is every big fire starts from a little brush fire, right? Just a little bit of smoke. And so for us, our goal and hope is if we can just be that little bit of smoke that can help raise awareness and help start the ball rolling downhill, start the bigger fire, start whatever you want to call that turns this into a much more massive effort, right? That's our goal. And so it's been five years. We've done amazing, amazing things. Right? We've given away over $600,000 in scholarships and training because we've partnered with a number of organizations that, that give free training on our behalf for some of our members. And we've just done a, a whole lot of good. And to see how we've been able to change people's lives. We've watched as some students have graduated and through our organization have gotten gone from internships into full-time roles. Um, it's just been really, really amazing. We've got mentor-protege programs. It's probably been, besides raising my kids, the most impactful thing to my life that I've ever done. It's truly the good, as one of my co-founders says, you know, we go to work every day to feed our families, but we volunteer and do the work that we do at ICMCP to feed our souls. Because ultimately, this will be the lasting thing that we do for this industry. So, Larry, in addition to what you were talking about earlier that prompted me to ask you about that, you're helping people, your desire to add value. But the thing that I took away from everything that you mentioned was legacy, building community, and the work that you're doing is soul satisfying. And those are things that you cannot put a price tag on. And so I just, again, want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for taking the time to explain that. It's been more gratifying and it's not easy. I'm I'm going to be 100% honest. We have gone through a number of trials and tribulations as it relates to running a not-for-profit. It's not easy. We are all volunteers. And as you, when you run a not-for-profit, as you continue to try and do work, you start to realize, right, uh, going out and getting money is hard, right? And so then you say, and as you look at all the different not-for-profits in the cyber in, cybersecurity industry, right, that have gone through this, where you have to go from the stage of, okay, we, we started, we're a bunch of volunteers and we're going out asking and looking for sponsorships and so forth to help sustain us. You have to get to some aspect of self-sustainability. And so we're on that journey. And so luckily through relationships in the industry, right, we're learning a lot, right? So ISSA, former presidents of ISSA helping us, um, the Cloud Security Alliance, their founder, he's helping quite a bit. And so through our networking and through, honestly, just the body of the cybersecurity community. The one thing that I will say about cybersecurity community, unlike a lot of other communities from a professional standpoint, is we're really, really close-knit. And so I tell people a lot that 
the cybersecurity community is a lot smaller than a lot of people realize. Yes, there are a lot of people in this community. Yes, there are more people come into it every day. But at the end of the day, this community is not that big. And so because of that, you know, we're at like two degrees of separation. And because of that, the sense of community you have, all of the military and for former military members that are a part of it, right? There's an aspect of camaraderie that we've all sort of brought to the table. Now, I will be honest and I will say money is starting to poison some of it. There's a, I wrote an article about is money ruining ethics in the field of cybersecurity? Because there are a lot of things that are happening now, I feel, that are ethically challenging and how people are going about doing certain business. But at the end of the day, this community is really, really small. And so I tell people all the time, watch the bridges you burn because you never know who that bridge actually connected to. Larry, you're, you're so right. That is, that is the gospel truth. And I'll say this, in any industry, it's always better to leave a person or a situation as good as or better than you found it. So that if you ever have to pass that way again and interact with that person or that situation or that organization, at a minimum, they'll say, hey, you know what, Larry or Sean, they were good to work with. They were good to talk to. We, we didn't always agree, but they were civil. And I think that's, it's good to be well thought of. All right. And so, Larry, now let's pivot back to the actual cybersecurity landscape. And I wanted to ask you, what are you seeing is one of the most common issues companies are facing today? Phishing attacks. Phishing attacks right now are the most pervasive threat across every organization, large or small. So they aren't, uh, it's not unique to the Fortune 1000. It's not unique to SMB. Everybody is getting pummeled with phishing attacks. And so that is right now, from my perspective, is the number one threat that everybody's having to deal with because it's easy to find email addresses for a company and you only need one, whether the company is 10 people or the company is 400,000. All you need is one. And that is what companies are dealing with right now. And it's getting more and more difficult to identify, is this email legitimate or not? Is the site that they're asking me to go to legitimate or not? Like it is getting more and more difficult by the day. Okay. And so given that what you're seeing, Larry, is um, phishing as the most common problem, what would you recommend as a solution to that phishing problem. So honestly, right, so there's always that technology conversation, right, to help reduce some of it. But at the end of the day, the biggest bang for your buck for every organization is going to be education. I push the education narrative on a regular basis, and that is for large and small companies. You need to educate your employees, right? They need to know and ask them to go to a website to put their passwords in. They need to know that Microsoft is not going to email them or their bank is not going to. Like there's some just really basic educational components that companies can share with their user population to help reduce the risk immensely. And I've seen it. I've watched it at, at the, the organization I was at previously at Greenway Health. Um, before I resigned as, as, as my role as CISO there, we had reduced 
the risk in that organization by over 90% just by educating staff on what fishing, what to look for and things to pay attention to as it relates to phishing emails coming into the organization. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And so now let's do a little bit of a role play. Let's say you have a colleague and you're talking to your colleague and they're at a company where they don't have a CISO and they're, they're kind of on the fence about hiring a CISO. What would you say to that colleague who's on the fence about hiring a CISO? So, so it's an interesting question, right? So, so hiring a CISO, there's so many factors to bringing in a CISO. So the first factor is, are you dealing with security strategically or tactically, right? So, and I ask that because doing security tactically means you are not aligning, you are firefighting is what you're doing, right? You're not aligning to your business needs. You're not aligning to what's going to protect you from a risk standpoint based on the business that your company performs. And so if they are doing security tactically, they're well behind the curve. And I would say, and I use this analogy in board meetings, and I I say, well, you have health insurance for your employees, and every company does. Okay. All right. Do you have company insurance, right? Do you have corporate liability insurance? And they, yeah, of course. Right. And I said, so, so why do you, why do you do that? Are you doing that because, you know, it's just a good thing to do? I said, nobody plans on getting sick, but guess what? It's cheaper if you have health insurance before you get sick. You have to look at cybersecurity as you look at every other risk management function. It is there to help reduce the risk in the event of something happening. So the CISO's role is there to be your strategic partner. A lot of organizations don't hire CISO, one, partially because the role's expensive, right? You're not going to get somebody there cheaply. But two, they don't understand that the CISO actually has a financial strategic advantage to the company. Because what the CISO does and allows the company to do is every business decision that they make, right? So if you've got a a $100 million company and they are making $100 million a year making widgets and they want to pivot because they think that if they change the way they're making widgets, they can uh, bump their revenue to $150 million a year. Well, what the CISO adds is it's not that the CISO is going to not enable you to make widgets and become innovative enough to become generating more revenue in your business. What they do is they help you do it in a way that's going to prevent you from spending more money later because you didn't do it securely, right? Because if you think about today's innovation, every aspect of innovation of every company utilizes technology to do it. Well, with the implementation of technology towards innovation, you inherently add risk. Right. So a way for you to mitigate that risk is to plan. And a CISO's job, a CISO's number one job is to strategically plan and understand what the business is doing and how they're doing it and what technology is doing to support and enable the business and then align the security controls that are needed to enable the business to accomplish their goals while mitigating the risk associated with it. 
It's really not that hard of a problem when you look at it in that way, but most people don't. Most people look at the CISO role as, I'll say, a support cost. Do I want to take on the additional support cost of having uh, someone in that role that I'm going to have to pay X amount of money? No, we don't want, we don't need somebody at that level. We don't need somebody that is going to cost that amount of money in that position. And that's what they look at it as. And because they're looking at it from a numbers game, they're not seeing the bigger picture. Well, and it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Larry, because I know one of the companies that I worked for during this time of year, they would have massive surplusing or, you know, massive layoffs. And the question would be, why are you letting go of all of this knowledge capital? Why are you letting all of this experience go? And it always came down to, well, we've got to reduce expenses. And so we're going to reduce headcount. And that's that mindset ends up getting you in trouble. So I appreciate that answer. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's let's pivot into getting to know a little more about Larry, the person. Larry, name your favorite musician or band. So so this is an interesting question. So for me, I, I have my music. My playlist is so all over the place. Right. So I listen to hardcore rap. I listen to R&B. I listen to country I listen to pop, like I listen to a little bit of everything. But if I had to say my favorite of all time, it would I'd probably have to go back to probably Run DMC because Run DMC was the first rap entity that I followed very, very closely. And they had such a broad range. And and so their range sort of is similar to my range. They were some of the ones who that first, they were the first ones that got me into rap. Like I, they were the first rap group that I actually listened to. And then I went back and listened to some of the, the stuff before them. Even then, their range of music opened my range of music up. And so I, I have to sort of go back to Run DMC. And I know probably most of their songs by heart. I think we're probably in the same age range because um, Run DMC was definitely a group that I cut my teeth on back in the day. So what's interesting is, you know, I was born over in the UK and came over here at a relatively young age. And so my formative years were spent with a lot of my cousins who grew up in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, we all definitely. Right. We all grew up in South Florida. And so, of course, you know, that New York influence wasn't only found in, you know, how they talked or how they dressed, but also in the music that they listened to. And so, you know, Run DMC was definitely um, one of those musical and lyrical influences. And so I can definitely resonate with you on that. All right. So let's find out about Larry's favorite sports team. Basketball is my passion. Basketball is is the sport that really sort of for me paved the way and enabled me to to do and experience a ton of things that I would have never experienced. But it also helped shape in my early years the leader who the military helped hone, right? And so that's my passion. But when it comes to sports, 
The one team that I am a super fanatic about is the Dallas Cowboys. I am a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan. And I'm born and raised in Texas, but uh, growing up, I was an Oilers and Dallas fan. And you could be that because one was AFC and one was NFC. But when the Oilers moved to Tennessee, well, I was pretty much done with that and just stuck with the Cowboys. So I'm a diehard Cowboys fan. And for my children, my boys, they, I told them when they were young, Cowboys are number one was the phrase I always use. And then if they didn't root for the Cowboys, I told them they would have to find another place to live. So, <laughs> so we, my, me and my sons, my stepson gets a, gets a break on that because he, he wasn't raised with the Cowboys. So I give him a pass. But for, for, for my, my other three boys, they are diehard Cowboys fans because dad is a diehard Cowboys fan. Now, when it comes to basketball, in the NBA, I am a Spurs fan, and I am a Spurs fan because I grew up in San Antonio. In San Antonio, I got to work out with the Spurs, being an all-star all-star basketball player in San Antonio. I got to work out with the Spurs a number of times, and so I fell in love with the Spurs a long time ago. I did hate Greg Popovich when he was the uh, general manager because I did not understand why he was making me do a drop step fifty times, but I came to respect him later in life. And so I, I am a hardcore Spurs fan. Those are two great teams, and those are amazing stories to back up why you are fans of the Dallas Cowboys and the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah. Outside of that, I can pretty much – now that I'm in Florida, right, so I am I'm, – uh, because I'm in Tampa, I am a Lightning fan because they're the local team. I'm going to become a Tampa Bay Rays fan. I was a Yankees fan for a long time, but I was a Yankees fan because I found out I, I was never a baseball fan. And in college, I heard the story about Derek Jeter, and I started following Derek Jeter, and I loved the Yankees, and they were winning, so it was easy to like them. But um, now that I'm here, because I don't really have any huge affinity for baseball, I'm going to root for the Rays now that I live here, just so I have a couple of local teams that I can root for. But I'm definitely not rooting for the Bucks. Still, still, still riding with the Cowboys when it comes yeah, to I'll, football. Yeah, I'm, 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 I've got Cowboy blankets and paraphernalia and everything you can imagine. So I've got jerseys galore, hats, everything. So I am a hardcore. That that is the one team, the Spurs and the and the um uh, and the Cowboys are the two teams that until I die, they like I'm riding or dying. All right, no arguments there. So, Larry, how about your favorite vacation spot? So, um, you know, so be, having lived on the East Coast for pretty much ever since I left college, it's anywhere in the Caribbean. I don't have any particular one spot. But I'm akin to the Caribbean because that's just where 99.9% of my vacations have been. You know, I've gone to Europe a few times and I love the places I've been. But the Caribbean, I love the water. And so any place in the Caribbean where there's blue water, I can be there. <laughs> I can, I can, I can lay there for as long as, uh, as long as they would allow me. Well, Larry, that's, um, that's a, a great region to be in at any point of time during the year uh, because the weather there is always so great. My parents are originally from the island of Barbados, so I remember the many times that we went there to visit family, and um, it's uh, one of the most beautiful places on earth. So the Caribbean is definitely a great vacation spot. Larry, before we let you go, one last question for you, and that would be, what one person are you following that's innovative? So I follow a lot of people. 
But one person that I follow that probably a lot of people follow, but I don't know if they, if a lot of people realize how much this guy's doing, and that's Richard Branson. And so when you think about Richard Branson, so I did a lot of, um, I, I do a lot of reading. I think it's important that our industry to do a lot of reading, both professionally, but also non-professionally. When you look at Richard Branson, where he came from, what he's done, I've just found it interesting that he is, regardless of how much money he has, right, he's never stopping trying to come up with that next thing. And and I say that because a lot of people don't know he's starting a cruise line, right? So they're going to have Virgin Voyages. The Virgin Voyages is going on its first cruise in April of 2020. And so when you look at what he's done with Virgin Voyages, it is basically turning the cruise industry upside down because he's creating an experience for cruise lines that's completely unique. He's packaging it where it's not, you know, the thing that a lot of people complain about with the cruises is the nickel and diming, right? So he's listened, he's watched, and he's and he sat back. And so I'm watching him innovate in that and his airlines and a lot of the different things that he is he's taking on as projects and initiatives and watching him try and turn what has been an industry norm upside down to add better experience for the customers. I like that he's looking at the customer and recognizing that uh, for customers, experience matters. I mean, whether you're staying in a hotel, whether you're going on a cruise, going on an airline, renting a car, right? Experience matters and people return based on their experience. So trying to be mindful of that and trying to keep that at the forefront of everything that you do when you are a service uh, organization or a technology company, recognizing that service matters, right? Your technology is important, right? Its performance, what it does, that, that it does what it says it does, right? That's all great. But service matters, right? And so if someone has a problem with your technology, as good as it is, how is it that you treat them, right? Once they buy your technology, how do you treat them after it's been purchased? Do they have the same level of engagement with you after they bought a service from you, after they bought a piece of technology from you? Or do you look at them as a check and you write them off and you you don't contact them again until it's time for renewal? Right. And so for me, it's a huge thing to pay attention to. It's a huge thing that that I look at and measure myself at. So because even as a, as a CISO in, in a corporate environment, right, all my customers in, are internal. And so but then I also, depending on what the type of business the company is doing, I may have external companies. And so service matters. So whether it's my internal customer and they're asking me about something that we've done or they're asking about something that we're doing to help mitigate risk in a particular area of business, the service that I and my team provide matters. If it's an external customer and we've got customer data that they expect us to protect, right, and they have questions about how we do it, how well we do it, the service that I provide to them matters. And so I love what Richard Branson has done and what he is doing to try and keep that at the forefront of what his his organization provides. Larry, you are the second person that I've interviewed who has mentioned um, Richard Branson as the person that they find to be most innovative. And I couldn't agree more. I've 
I've read and have a couple of his books, he thinks on a different level. And I think we need more entrepreneurs. We need more billionaires, people that are at his level financially to step back and say, you know what, what can I do to keep innovating? And not just to your point, earning a buck and getting a customer, but how can I add value? How can I help? Which is actually, interestingly enough, something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast as a part of your ethos. So it's nice how that's kind of come full circle. Absolutely. It's always top of mind for me. And so when I look at organizations that I want to partner with and I want to do business with or that I may potentially want to join, right, whatever it may be, that's a question I'm always asking. That's something I'm always looking at is that aspect of it. Because a lot of people think innovation is coming up with some new widget, right? And innovation doesn't mean creating some new widget. And so so that's why for me, Richard Branson is is really one because innovation is not always about the technology. Sometimes it's really about experience. Oh, that's great. Larry, now that we've come to the end of our time, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? LinkedIn. I live on LinkedIn, so uh, they can definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Larry Whiteside Jr. on LinkedIn. So you look me up, reach out, send me a note. I communicate on LinkedIn very, very regularly. And um, if you want to reach out, please feel free to do so. If you read my my summary on there, you'll, you'll understand it. And people will attest that I am very truthful to my summary that if you just want to chat, whether it's about new tech that you've got or it's just career goals or things of that nature, right? I'm here to chat. I've experienced a ton of things. And if I can't help you directly, I'd probably know somebody who can. So again, my my goal is to just make this industry better and watch it grow and just provide value any way I can. Well, great. Well, Larry, thank you so much for your time. This has been one of my favorite podcasts and I don't say that lightly. You are insightful. You are just a great person to talk to. And thank you so much for um, being so transparent and open and sharing as you have over the last 30, 40 minutes. This has been a great episode. And so, you know, I can't thank you enough for sharing and for agreeing to be a part of Tech and Main Presents. And so with that, I want to thank our audience for listening and be sure to tune in next time when we'll have another technology expert share their wisdom. Goodbye for now. Thanks for listening to Tech and Main Presents. Be sure to check back regularly for the next episode and tell your friends. Thank you.